0: We come here to this uh, section in uh, Peter's letter to uh, the the churches that are spread around Asia Minor, and and here he comes to speak about the marriage relationship, and we approach it as God's grace at work through marriage. Uh, you can th- you think about how God's grace has worked in our culture through marriage, how it has been foundational to our understanding of culture and the home and, and so much. But I'm, I'm really risking here something here this morning by, by taking a little detour to revisit for most of you um, something that I have communicated a lot in the past and kind of bring it back into perspective because marriage is an excellent, I don't know if excellent is a good word, it's a, it's a really bad opportunity for idolatry. And so this picture here kind of explains that, that really all religion, all of man's thoughts, all of one day when this world is gone and all we have is eternity, it's going to boil down to there was either God-centered worship going on or there was man-centered idolatry. And I'm going to try not to go too deep in here because this is just like intro stuff. But, but God-centered worship is represented... To me, most significantly by the idea of sacrifice, by the idea of offering up what has been given to us to worship God with, whether it be our our time or our energy or our finances or our relationships, and offering it up to him as an offering of worship to say, Lord, you do with it what you will. Uh, compared to man centered idolatry, and the best modern picture to me for me of man centered idolatry is really the vending machine and that 's a situation where we take what God has given us to worship him with, and we take it out of our pocket like change and we pop it into that idol to try to get what we think we need from that thing. It might be a relationship, it might be our job it might be it might be um, a hobby. And we're plugging in our time or we're plugging in our effort or we're plugging in our words to try to get from that thing our needs met. And, and really, what ministers to me more than anything is the idea of how God wants to work on my heart. And within my heart, I'm either serving Him with my desires, or I'm serving myself. And when I am serving God with my heart and with my desires, when he's on the throne of my heart, if you will, then everything in my life is worship. Everything in my life is an opportunity to offer up what I have to him, for him to do what he wills with it, because I give it to him. As worship, or if I'm serving myself, then I approach everything in my life like an idol. I approach my relationships, I approach my opportunities, and, and and I'm treating those things like I need you, I need you job, I need you person to give me what I need. So that's the only reason why I'm putting this into you. But repentance happens within the heart. God can even be made into an idol. The majority of religion in this world is God or deities or spirits being used as idols, trying to manipulate him rather than to worship and trust him. Marriage is a huge temptation toward idolatry, to treat that other person like a vending machine. I'm only doing this to get this from you, and if I don't get this from you, that's when I get mad. What do we do? When the vending machine doesn't drop that soda or doesn't drop that snack, we start kicking it. And that's what we do in our relationships when we've paid and paid and paid and it hasn't dropped for us. Sadly, people today are becoming more intolerant of biblical guidance for marriage and they're stuck in in just finding their own way. I, I overheard a conversation when I was using the self-checkout at Kroger. And these two people, this, this lady and this man, were, were kind of catching up with each other. They hadn't seen each other in a while. And he says, so I hear you got married. She's like, yeah, got married in August. She said, you know, really nothing's changed. Because, I mean, we're already living together. So, I, you know, it's not really that different. And then his response was, yeah, so-and-so just got married. He said the same thing. Because they were already living together. He said, but you know what? What he told me was, it just feels right in the eyes of God. Our culture is just fumbling through relationships and marriage, just trying to figure it out. That's like I said in my prayer what Bill Barr had said recently, that, that morality in our culture is surviving off the vapor trails of biblical faith, of Christianity. So, so Peter brings us here to the discussion of husbands and wives. And there's a reason why in the epistles, wives are always brought up first. And, and we'll get to that a little bit. But, but he says, likewise, wives, amidst this opportunity to turn marriage into idolatry, giving what I get have only to get what I need, he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hope in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. There's something that I really appreciate about that last statement of verse 6. There's a recognition here that there are frightening aspects to submission. It's not always easy to hitch your wagon to someone else. To hitch your wagon to someone else's calling, even. And, and many poor decisions of what to say or what to do come from that, the fear that grips someone. That they're like, where are we going? I love that statement, do not fear anything that is frightening. It recognizes that there's frightening aspects to biblical submission in marriage. Then verse 7, which we're going to focus in on mostly next week. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. These statements in this one verse are very heavy. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands this morning, or or young men, or, or not so young men that aren't married though, don't check out here. Listen up. Much of what we're talking here today helps us to understand biblical marriage. Helps us to understand our wives. As we're commanded here, live with your wife in an understanding way. This is school for us here, guys. Also, as a believer, your wife should be experiencing less of the fear, the turmoil that Peter is speaking about here in writing to wives of unbelievers. Okay? You also may be convicted of encouraging her to make uh, the primary, the very aspects that Peter commands should be secondary in their adorning. If you're not married, don't check out either here, okay? Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a lesson to us of what Christ and the church is. Marriage is what it is to explain the relationship between the church and Christ. And, and if you're thinking about marriage in the future, uh, I remind you something that a pastor I worked with once, and he was talking about um, uh, reaching people to, to, uh, or helping people to feel welcome to attend church and something like that. He said, what you draw someone with is what you're going to have to keep them with. What you draw someone with is what you're going to have to keep them with. And we'll see that here in our passage this morning, about the importance of making the outward show secondary. This fits within our our section here where we look at what it means to fall in line with God's design for submission. Submission. Where he says in verse 13a, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then we looked at how he talks about the, gov- the institution of government and the institution of employment. And here we are at the institution of marriage for these two weeks. God created and defined marriage and we must le- learn the roles of marriage from him. Or else we're lost in the dark. And maintaining a healthy marriage is a full-time job. I heard Ravi Zacharias in a message that I listened to this past week. He says, marriage is the only full-time job from which you can never take a vacation. It takes work. And just as we must allow God to define the purpose of marriage, ladies, let God define the godly wife. Let him define the godly wife. I realize the teaching is, is completely backwards in our modern culture. Nothing I'm going to explain here is to, you're going to keep it from being backwards in our modern culture. And you might have a view that's not biblical on this. It may even be, you might have an unbiblical view that you've taken from this passage. But notice that the context that Peter is writing to, the specific context here, is to wives of unbelieving husbands. Wives who do not have a relationship with God through Christ. And and now in the Roman Empire, there were laws that governed marriage in certain ways. For instance, uh, husbands were not allowed to be physically abusive to their wives. And I want you to note here that Peter is not telling the wife to remain under physical abuse. Not at all. But it was quite legal and culturally expected that the husband would visit prostitutes as a normal part of life. He would have mistresses as long as they weren't, uh, for some reason, uh, from the class of the aristocrats. And their, cult- their wives had cultural ways of dealing with this. They might try to try a little extra hard to get their husband's attention. Or they would have their own men on the side. Not uncommon at all. But let God define the godly wife under the husband's leadership. He says, be subject to your own husband. We've looked at over these weeks about how to be subject means to remain under. To be thrown under someone. Be remaining under, under your husband's authority. Becoming a Christian did not liberate women from this submission. It was intended uh, from the creation of marriage back in the garden. And so, notice he's not addressing, he's not saying, women, be subject to men. Right? He says, be subject to your own husband. We talked about how submission, you could define submission as sub being come under, be under. Submission being be under the mission of another. The husband is called to provide, to protect, to nurture his wife and his family. And submission to that means receiving the husband's ministry a provision, protection, and nurture. We see this in God's design for submission back from, as I mentioned, from the created order. We can be told in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I want you to notice that, that submission does not mean having less value. Does Christ have less value than God the Father? Just because, he is, because God the Father is the head of Christ? No. Submission does not mean less value. In Ephesians 5, we see God's special instruction to husbands and wives, where, where He says, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And throughout the New Testament, the call to love and submit offset our natural propensities as husbands and wives. Colossians 3 says, Wives, submit to your husbands. As is fitting to the Lord, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Sadly, many have decided that love and respect are only required when the other party is keeping up their end. And if that were the case, the wives that Peter is writing to here would have been prime candidates for a free pass. Right? Because he's writing to wives of unbelieving husbands. Next week, we'll look at how husbands are called to lead. And we'll also touch more on what submission is not. For now, submission does not mean being inferior or incapable of having a significant role. Submission does not mean having no voice in decisions. Submission does not mean allowing a husband to sin without confrontation. God designed the husband and wife to complement each other in our roles. As one writer said, husbands and wives must be partners, not competitors. Let God define the godly wife. And see the purpose that Peter is telling them, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Just as the other believers, she is... To According to 1 Peter 2.12, which we looked at, keep her conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the visitation. Now, this doesn't mean that she's not to share the gospel with her husband because she's going to be included in Peter's challenge in chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord the Lord has holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the for the hope that is in you. I think that the use of two terms to describe the submission behavior helps us to understand and balance the balancing act of submission. And that's respectful and pure conduct. The Bible background commentary says. Respectful and pure is the behavior that was most approved for women throughout antiquity. Otherwise, it was a common expectation for women across cultures. Respectful helps us to better understand the submissiveness of the wife. There were Christians, just as there were Christians who wanted to be rid of the Roman government, but we read how Peter writes, be subject to all human authorities. And there were Christians that that wanted to be rid of their their employment, servant-master relationship. And Peter corrected that. There were Christian wives who wondered what it meant to be free in Christ. Must they remain respectful to their unbelieving husbands? And Jesus says, uh, Peter says specifically here, yes. We're, We're told that they're to have pure conduct. Behavior free from what is morally wrong. As with husbands, I'm sure that it was normal for wives to meet their sexual needs outside of their marriage once their husbands started to wander. And Peter tells them that their commitment to Christ in purity could make a huge impact on their husband. What... Does obedience, though, to the command to submit to one's husband mean that Christian wives should disobey God and follow their husbands into sin? This would have been a very common struggle for these Christian wives. Aside from accepting their husbands' adultery, as expected, Christian wives were often placed in this conundrum. And it was expected that wives would worship their husbands' gods. Plutarch, who was a first century historian, wrote this, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. We looked at this picture of umbrellas when we were talking about what what does it mean when government says you must obey disobey God? The the, the, the gold umbrella is God's authority. It 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 it's what uh, the, the shadow that it casts is the 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 covering that we are living under when we are living in trust and relation and obedience to Him. So that brown umbrella could represent the husband. And, and the, the command here is to to come under that authority. For Christian wives. But where that authority steps outside of the authority of God, don't go there. The same idea, the same expectation is that Peter is communicating to them. There's an old saying, you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. That's because vinegar is is going to repel what you want to catch. And, And the sweetness of honey is going to draw them in. The idea here is that being respectful and pure is still the best way, Peter's telling them, to draw your husband to you and to God. It's always tempting to just try to pull strings, to manipulate. But guess what? You're sliding into idolatry. I do what I do to get you to give me what I need. We've already talked about where repentance needs to happen. It's a common temptation that we all face when we're trying to control our lives. And when we feel like our lives are out of control, it's easy to think that what's best is to throw out respect and even purity. As we see next in our verses, rather than hoping that your man is going to change, let God refine good qualities. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, men, I want you to notice this. This statement applies for us. It's something for us to learn too, to let God refine good qualities in women in our wives, in what we encourage. And he goes on, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Through media, through magazine racks, through fashion, Women are told that what gets a man's attention, that's what should matter. Warren Weir'sby said, A strange situation exists in society today. We have more readily available information about sex and marriage than ever before, yet we have more marital problems and divorces. Obviously, something is wrong. Followers of Christ are warned in these tense relational situations don't focus solely on the external he talks about the external adorning of a woman's body it wants to make i, I want to uh, phrase this don't focus on the fleshly be subject and respectable and pure conduct don't try to appeal to the unsaved husband's fallen nature is what I believe Peter is saying here. Is it wrong to wear makeup? Is it wrong to get gussied up? No. Okay? Peter's not saying they can't wear clothes. He groups that here with the hairdo and the, you know, and the jewelry and stuff. In the same way, he's not saying don't braid your hair, don't wear jewelry. That's not what's being said here. I want to give you, show you just some images that I pulled up of, of first century women in the uh, of the aristocracy in the Roman um, Empire. That is quite an updo on that on that sculpture there. It was very normal for for women to to wear their wealth. And I would, you know, different things are attractive in different cultures. Maybe that, you know was super attractive uh, in their cultures. All the, you know, the jangling and jangling and all the, you know, the, the, the hairdo. One writer says, a Christian wife with an unsaved husband might think that she must imitate the world if she's going to win her mate. But just the opposite is true. Glamour is artificial and external. True beauty is real and internal. Glamour is something a person can put on and take off. But true beauty is always present. Glamour is corruptible. It decays and fades. True beauty from the heart grows more wonderful as the years pass. A Christian woman who cultivates the beauty of the inner person will not have to depend on cheap externals. End quote. Instead, Christian wives are told, focus more on your inner person. Do you love this? But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Because external beauty, it perishes. with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. True beauty comes from the heart, not from the store. There's an Albanian proverb that I remember hearing, better to marry a good wife than a pretty one. You can get both. But let's admit, guys, this Idea that we're being sold in our culture that there's just one definition of pretty is ridiculous. There's all sorts of different definitions of pretty. Even though our culture doesn't want to tell us that because that won't send everybody to the same store. The fact is is there there's not intended to be this one definition. We're told here that we should trust God that inner beauty is attractive, not just physically attractive, but more importantly, remember this this context here of speaking to wives of unbelieving husbands. It's spiritually attractive. I love something that I also heard Ravi Zacharias say. He said, do you understand why we call people individuals? It's because they are indivisible. They are indivisible. A person is made up of their body and their mind and their spirit. And if you're a four-part theory person, a soul, these cannot be divided from one another. But what does our culture encourage us to do? It encourages us to look at a person like just a piece of meat. It lies to us and says, you can divide this woman You can divide her body from her dreams, from her hopes, from her needs, from her heart. The fact is this. You won't accomplish spiritual victory by using fleshly tools. I believe that's what Peter is saying to these wives. You will not accomplish spiritual victory by using fleshly tools. And churches have to remember that a lot of times. But think about the fleshly tools that are used when when a a young lady is like, I'm going to date him into the kingdom, right? I'm going to go out with him and I'm going to share the gospel with him and I'm going to lead him to the Lord. You will not accomplish spiritual victories by using fleshly tools. There are couples that make the horrible decision when one struggles with pornography to decide it's better that we watch it together. You know what they're doing? Now they're both believing the lie that you can divide an indivisible person and and separate their body from their heart and their mind and their spirit. It doesn't do good. It doesn't bring good things. It doesn't bring a spiritual victory because it's a fleshly tool. Let God refine good qualities. Then he talks about the holy women who hoped in God, how they used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And he he gives us our illustration here, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I I love the statement, women who hoped in God. I, I wish I had time here to go into the theme of hope through 1 Peter if you pick up one of the personal study sheets in the foyer, there's a little section there that, goes, that lists off the verses where hope is talked about in 1 Peter. It's very significant. These women that hoped in God he's referring to. And men, we shouldn't encourage wives to trust us. We shouldn't encourage them to hope in us. It is the woman that places her hope in God that is right where God wants her. One writer said, quiet confidence in God produces in a woman the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, but it also enables her to submit to her husband's authority without fear. Guys, how do we, right off the bat here, learn about living with our wives in an understanding way? Help them to develop a quiet confidence in God to hope in God so Sarah's brought up here and, and it, it specifically talks about her calling Abraham Lord okay there's nothing here of like I'm nothing you're everything this is a this would have been a common formal uh, um, term of respect sometimes I walk into the house and I say hello my lady you know that sort sort of thing so, so you you're modeling your behavior after Sarah if you're not afraid during a frightening situation. Can you think of Maybe you're not familiar with Sarah. Again, in the personal study sheet, there's a whole lot of verses you can look up about different situations that Sarah was put into in following Abraham's calling and her calling with her husband. But... There were situations where uh, Sarah was told to pick up from Ur where she grew up, where she lived, and go to this place called Canaan. That would have been frightening. There was, uh, Abraham did some stupid things more than once when he's coming into an area. He says, I don't want to get killed because you're beautiful, and I know that the king here is going to want you for his harem, so I'm going to tell him you're my sister. Which means you're going into his harem, you think Sarah was frightened? But Peter isn't referencing any of those situations. He's referencing a situation where Sarah could have really taken a shot at Abraham. When does does Sarah call Abraham Lord? In Genesis 18, when when the Lord came and visited Abraham, Abraham and Sarah and he says I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah your wife shall have a son and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him now Abraham and Sarah were old advanced in years and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah she couldn't have children anymore so Sarah laughed to herself after I am worn out and my Lord is old shall I have pleasure shall I have a child my Lord is old she could have said this worn out rust bucket it's when you hit those moments and you think this is not where I intended to be and now we're old he's old I'm old Wives, can you think about the grieving loss that comes with growing older and have respect for your husband? Do you see him as your partner in the disappointment or the problem? It's easy to turn around and go, what is it in my life that just keeps... It's you. You're the common factor. Again, there's plenty to make a submissive wife Frightening if the paychecks stop coming. If he develops a bad habit. A medical diagnosis can turn your life upside down even though you're healthy as a whip. But this is the man that you've hitched your wagon to. That's when, Pete, that's when Sarah kept respect for Abraham. And you're with him to the end of the line, respecting him as God's man for you. And that's what God designed to marriage for marriage to be about. That's what it means to fall in line with God's design for submission. I want you to indulge me here just as we close. I posted this on Facebook a long time ago. Yeah, this is one of those illustrations that I'm just finding a way to sneak in there but I think it communicates the same spirit. It's a a comic strip that's up on my parents' uh, fridge. And a lot of you probably saw this when I posted it. The six stages of marriage. First is, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. Stage two, you're not as great as I thought. Stage three, you need to change. Stage four. You can't be changed. Notice, though, they've gotten quite a bit older there. It's taken some time. Next stage, I accept you as you are. But let's not wait until this next scenario to be able to say this. The last stage, you're the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Let's say that now. Let's not wait till then. Let's bow our heads.